Hello and welcome to Running on Joy with Francesca Goodwin, the podcast that celebrates putting one foot in front of the other in whatever form that takes. This is a podcast that explores how we can live in a more connected, creative and compassionate manner for the benefit of our communities, our planet and our own mental and physical health. I'm your host, Francesca Goodwin, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what joy means to them. Running on Joy is ad-free, but if you enjoy the show, please do take a moment to leave a review and give feedback wherever you listen to your podcasts. You might also consider supporting the work of Running on Joy guest Dan Lawson through rubbish shoes and rerun clothing to end the cycle of wastage in the sports clothing and footwear industries. Follow at Rubbish Shoes and at Rerun.Clothing on Instagram for further information. Hello everyone, welcome to the podcast. My guest today is committed to giving the world a wake-up call. They're an outdoor philosopher with multiple degrees to their name, a writer, cyclist and activist who is passionate about the need to find urgent, intelligent and effective responses to our multiple environmental challenges. With a love for endurance, they use what they term Adventure Plus to communicate on environmental issues and inspire positive change. Their book, The Carbon Cycle, Crossing the Great Divide, based on a bike ride from Texas to Alaska, exploring climate change, was shortlisted for the Banff Mountain Festival Adventure Travel Book Award in 2013. And their upcoming book, The Life Cycle, sets our focus on biodiversity as they cycle over 5,000 miles from Costa Rica to the southern tip of South America on a bamboo bike that they built themselves. Having left academia, they now live in Cumbria and work freelance running courses that use the power of wild places to support personal and professional positive action on environmental sustainability, alongside all their other projects with activism and writing. So I am thrilled to now allow them to introduce themselves in the manner of their choosing and invite them to speak on Running on Joy. Thank you. And it's really, really lovely to be here. Uh, the bike ride that you just mentioned ended up being from Columbia to Cape Horn, and it was 8,288 miles. And right. every one of them hurt. <laughs> Goodness, I'm sorry. I did you a disservice there. I, I told you very short by a few thousand miles. <laughs> miles go, I tell you. I'm talking today from uh, Cumbria in northwest England, where it's actually a beautiful, sunny, if cold day. Lovely. And with a huge array of, of books behind you as well <laughs> that we've just been commenting on. <laughs> Life as an academic. And you are Kate Rolls, Dr. Kate Rolls. So welcome. Kate is fine, yeah. Thank Wonderful. you. Okay, we'll stick to Kate. <laughs> Thank you too. Um, so Kate, what I usually do with um, all my guests is just to give a little bit of, of context to you and, and your story. So if you don't mind kind of rewinding <laughs> to kickstart us off with um, what childhood was like and growing up and your connection to the outdoors and to cycling. Sure, and I think it's a good place to start because there's a lot of evidence that people who get to play outdoors as kids grow up to be environmentalists, or, or to put it the other way around, that most environmentalists played outdoors as kids. 
Um, and that was definitely uh, my case. We moved around us a lot, a lot as when I was a kid, but mostly in Scotland, apart from five years near Penzance, which was a whole other story. So we basically went from one to the country to, to back again. And I was always outdoors as a kid. And I was a, a passionate animal kid. So I was a really annoying teenager, a toddler rather, that would make a beeline for large dogs and dangerous cattle and so on. And I was always escaping from the garden to go and look for horses to say hello to. So, yeah, I was a big outdoorsy kid and a big animal kid. And we always lived in the countryside. That's amazing. I'm very much a dog petter as well, to the extent I, I was taking a group on DFV kind of hiking in uh, the Peak District. And there was someone with, I think it was a small dog, and I kind of lunged for the dog because I decided <laughs> that it definitely wanted stroking. And the owner was just looking absolutely aghast. The children looked aghast, and the dog just looked like it didn't know what was happening. It had never been lifted skyward on a mountain before. So. <laughs> <laughs> not sure it was appreciative but that's that's an amazing um start in life in terms of your immersion into nature and that definitely mm -hmm. makes sense in terms of how your career and your life has, has evolved since then um were you um sort of active in terms of of your cycling as well as a, as a child and a teenager or did that come later no not really I mean I was a horse mad kid and when we were in Penzance, I was lucky enough to have a pony that lived on the farmer's fields. And I used to cycle to the pony. And then when I left school, I had a gap year and I worked at a riding school and I cycled to that. And so the bike for me started out as a way of commuting to something I was more interested in. Um, and then gradually over the years, I realized, oh, my goodness, this cycling thing is amazing. I mean, I was an utterly unathletic kid. I was useless at sports. I hated sports, in fact, especially hockey. And um, just just wasn't a team player and not particularly fit. Um, but there was something about the bicycle that made me realise, oh, my goodness, you can be unfit but still use it to get places. And then actually over the years started to enjoy cycling for its own sake and realising that you could go 10, 20, 30 miles out of your back door without that much pain, really, <laughs> even if you were unfit. <laughs> and, and and access these amazing places so so that that was how I sort of gradually got into cycling but from a very unathletic starting point and from being interested in, in horses rather than bikes it sounds like there was a kind of massive call to freedom for you through the bike would you say that's accurate yeah well spotted definitely I mean I think that's an amazing thing about bikes they're very accessible and then you can jump on them and just go and suddenly just a mundane little journey that would be completely boring in a bus or a car becomes this little adventure that you can go on really easily. And also people treat you differently when you arrive somewhere on a bike. If you if you rock up in a car, nobody pays any attention. But if you arrive on a bike, everyone's like, oh, can't you afford a car? Or what the heck are you doing? And it's it creates a completely different dynamic and really opens up conversations that wouldn't happen if you arrived in a conventional transport means. Mm, that's really interesting. And I, I guess kind of hopping around a little bit here, but um, as you mention it, um, I can imagine that on the journeys that, that you've undertaken, that that starting point in a conversation has been really important mm -hmm. in terms of connecting to people. Yeah, I mean, in the carbon cycle, I wrote that a bike is a magician. And I really believe that A, it transforms the journey from mundane to a mini adventure, as I was saying, but B, it transforms how you interact with people. 
And as I started to go further, and particularly as I started to tour on a bike, so you rock up with big panniers, and I would usually do this on my own, um, there really there really is a transformation that happens in terms of the interactions with people. And it really brings out the best in people. Like if you turn up on your own, I think perhaps especially as a woman mm. on a loaded touring bike, everyone's like, oh, can you, do you want a meal? Can we look after you? What do you need? And they're really interested in why you're traveling that way and how you've experienced it and whether other people have been decent to you and what they can do to support you. So yeah, a bike, bikes are magicians in that sense, definitely. Yeah, it was interesting. It struck me when you when you were saying that whether it was a a kind of a means of security as well. Um, being a woman traveling by yourself, um, it's that kind of I I'm doing this, and it it's kind of a calling card without having to say sort of I I'm vulnerable in some way. Mm -hmm. it, it's more a a way of creating community around you and that network. <laughs> yes, exactly, and um. In all the years I've been cycle touring, I mean, I'm touching wood here. Um, I've never had any any hassle, never, ever, ever, any problems, ever. I mean, I've always been pretty good at keeping my antennae on the alert. And I, I think you have to approach the world, yeah, with a lot of alertness, but also with a lot of trust. And if you approach the world in, in that way, I think generally things work out. And then, as I say, if you add the extra element of being on a bike with panniers, it does seem to just create a trusting environment around it. Mm, it's like carrying your your home with you, really, isn't it? And if I, <laughs> I think I'm possibly casting you as a tortoise here, but it's not intentional. <laughs> well, it's about the tortoise speed, so that's actually <laughs> You know something about beating the hair in the end, anyway. <laughs> That's another book. <laughs> just, no, just no finish. <laughs> I'm never going to write anything longer than a limerick ever. Uh, we'll come back to that in a year or something. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be a, there'll be another one featuring a tortoise. <laughs> Um, and I'm interested, Kate, just to now kind of come back from that that little segue. And um, when did you obviously connected to the outdoors but when did environmental awareness and our impact on nature become more central to you yeah it's a good question as I said I was always an animal kid so I was always kind of trying to rescue birds and there was an incident on Aberdeen beach once where I was rescuing fish out of some nets and then got into big trouble with the fishermen so I was always drawn to to animals and to other creatures and then when I was an undergraduate student, which was at Aberdeen University, I read a book by Peter Singer called Animal Liberation, which was a lot, a lot of information about how we test cosmetics on animals, but even more so about intensive farming and the impacts of intensive farming on animals. And honestly, I was shocked. And I was also outraged. I mean, I was an animal kid all my life. I'd been either at school or at university all my life. And I had no idea about the impacts of, of the animals I was eating. I had no idea how they lived and how horrendous that was. And so I became a vegetarian there and then. Um, and that, yeah, and always have been since then. But then that reading about that then led me into reading about other things and kind of an amazing transformation, a really difficult transformation, actually, from 
quite a naive, uninformed person thinking the world was basically fine, to realising, oh my goodness, we have all these impacts on it. And not only is the food I'm eating implicated in immense animal suffering, but lots of other things that I just take for granted as part of my normal life have these environmental impacts that I had no idea about. And so then I just became really passionate about figuring out what my role in that might be and how I could change things even just a tiny little bit for the better and at least know about it and tell other people about it so that people can think through for themselves how they want to react to that information but the starting point was just realizing oh my goodness how did I not know this stuff and I don't think I'll ever ever forget the power of that and I guess that's partly why I've got into communication in the way that I have do you think um you just to talk a little bit about your early career in in teaching and and in academia was that kind of was that interesting going down that route linked to this idea that education is actually central to raising this awareness yes i'm not sure it was as consciously thought through as that at that point i mean i i sort of stumbled into doing a phd and spent a lot of time hill walking in the process of doing the PhD and the final 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 minute oh my god I better finish this thing and, <laughs> and then sort of yeah kind of got a temporary job in at Lancaster University which I wasn't suspecting that I would stay in academia as long as I did but um it, it did gradually become clear to me that communication was part of my my role if you like um, or part of something I could do at least, even though communication within academia is, is not as effective as perhaps it could be always. And what exactly was your research based around when you were teaching in universities? Well, I was really lucky that my first job was at Lancaster University in the philosophy department. So my degree was in philosophy, but with a kind of emphasis on animal welfare issues, animal rights issues and environmental ethics. And I got a job teaching environmental philosophy at Lancaster University, which included all of those things. So it couldn't have been a better set of subjects. <laughs> and I really, really enjoyed working with the students that we had. So my role was to give lectures. Some of them were mainstream philosophy, but most of them were around these big questions about how people relate to nature and to other species and what's gone wrong with that in the West. Because I think it's fair to say that if you look at the impacts we have on nature, our relationship with nature overall is, is pretty dysfunctional. And, and also with animals too, the way we treat animals sort of systematically in our agricultural systems. So there's some really big questions to be asked about what that relationship is like and why it's gone wrong where it has gone wrong and what an alternative set of relationships might look like. And so that those were the kind of questions I was most passionate about unraveling with my students in that context. It sounds also that it's taking um, that awareness away from it just being the statistics that we kind of mm. see in the news, which which seem quite cold, really. Yes. Um, and I, I don't know what your thoughts are around that and how kind of the theoretical can move us into a, a deeper and more kind of heart-centered, I guess, and a whole, <laughs> whole person association with the, with the issue rather than it just being a number. Yeah, that's a really insightful question. 
and actually in the end I found working in academia quite limiting from that point of view because yes my job was to deepen people's understanding of these issues and to have really interesting debates and discussions and so on and I even managed to set up a few field trips most philosophy departments don't have field trips but we went to the zoo one year and looked at the issues there around captive animals and, and zoos role in conservation and then we went to the island of rum another year and looked at the conservation policies on the island of rum so that was all great but mostly we were trying to discuss human nature relations in classrooms which were often artificially lit and heated and there would be no other other than human beings in the room other than our own gut flora and fauna so it actually realized it became really quite artificial to be having those conversations about that topic in that way in that context um and the other aspect of that of course is that it was completely depoliticized with a small p i mean my role as an academic really wasn't to turn out activists although that was what i most wanted to do so in the end um i left and set up outdoor philosophy which was trying to explore the same set of questions, but outdoors, so that nature was at least around us. Um, and, and so the questions and the discussions became less abstract and more grounded and more vivid. I mean, if you're on a sea kayak in even the sort of smallest of waves, you really get a sense of the power of nature and also just the extraordinary beauty of other creatures' lives. I mean, you have a seal come up behind you and look you in the eye that completely changes what you think is the value of that seal's life and the set of the seabirds and so on and so forth. So um, outdoor philosophy uh, was a thing I generated to try to counter exactly what you were talking about there, that sort of abstractness and the reduction of these issues to statistics and numbers in something that's very cold and doesn't capture the emotion and the urgency and the beauty of, of these issues. Well, it's certainly a massive contrast to all sitting around kind of looking down at your stomachs <laughs> yes. and going, hi, microbiome, you're the closest thing to nature that we've got. So, <laughs> but we've got to push through. <laughs> well, and that's important to acknowledge too, right? Like we are ecosystems as well as individual animals, but it's not as inspiring as, as being on the sea or in the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Maybe microbiome, you do matter too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and can you just talk me through sort of the evolution of outdoor philosophy um, and what you've done with that just in a little bit more detail? Yeah, so it started off literally as this idea, oh my goodness, we're having these conversations in the wrong place, let's go outside. And then it, and then it grew from that, really. I mean, it, it's by no means something that I do all the time. It's it's a, it's an occasional thing. I still run occasional outdoor philosophy events. Um, and the most powerful one, I think, has been the sea kayaking one, uh, just because it is incredible to be that close to the water and to feel the power of the ocean and to witness the sort of sea life that you see quite easily. And we used to go up to Arisaig, where it's just spectacularly beautiful. And you can take you complete beginners into a very spectacular environment very quickly and very safely. So we used to use that a lot as a way of giving people a kind of a wake up and reconnecting them back to the, to the nature that a lot of my delegates at that point were actually working on behalf of. But it's interesting, a lot of environmentalists even become very disconnected from the environment. And are very hungry for that kind of experience and then that feeds into their own work i mean that's how i experience it myself as well too long on the laptop and you sort of 
yeah, forget why you're doing this work. Whereas some time outdoors very swiftly reconnects you with the value of other than human lives and the importance of it all. That's such an interesting observation and not one that I'd necessarily thought of that actually the moment that you sort of put people into a role that constitutes work and, and a label within that industry, somehow that means that they're detached from the thing that they're actually studying and advocating for, really. Yeah, and it's not just the label, is it? I think it's it's also the reality of how we work these days. Like most of us spend a huge amount of time on computers and laptops um, and almost inevitably that's indoors, right? So once you've got a screen mediating between yourself and the world, obviously you are somewhat distanced and your eyes start to ache. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We say as we speak over Zoom, but thank you, Zoom, for connecting us. <laughs> that, wasn't, that wasn't a kind of subtle criticism of this at all. Rubbish sure Zoom podcast. <laughs> I'm sure you know what I mean. <laughs> no, I absolutely do. But uh, no, and uh, very much on the same wavelength. And I think also the antithesis to that, um, one might think is is the word adventure, which is central to what, what you do. Um, and I'm curious as to what that word means to you. And also whether you've encountered any kind of conflicting conflicting feelings over the use of that word um, and how it might have changed uh, and like perceptions sort of shifted around it. So a few questions there, one sort of your, your personal um, engagement with it and then also how you see it as, as functioning historically and currently. Uh, really, really interesting questions. I mean, and you're absolutely right. Adventure is a tricky word, eh? And it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I was always drawn to the concept of adventure as a kid without any sort of critical engagement with what that meant at that point. And I, I think it's probably the freedom thing that you kind of spotted earlier. There's something about this notion of people like Wilfred Thesiger wandering off with the nomads and just living a very different kind of life from the high consumption sort of stuff heavy life that many of us lead now in, in, in the West, particularly if we're leading urban lives. And then, you know, Thesiger kind of walks out of that, literally walks out of that life and strolls across the desert with a pocket full of rice and not much else. And there was something just tremendously romantic about that for me. And um, especially at, at a younger age, this notion of, of freedom and living life according to different values. I think that was always part of the adventure concept for me. But at the same time, although I was drawn to the adventure and the world of adventure, I was kind of troubled in a, not at that point at all articulate way, this notion of conquering that often comes up and people that conquer Everest and conquer mountains. And there's a very kind of, I'm not sure if macho even is the right word, but yeah, conquering mentality where the nature is something to be overcome rather than a community of other beings to hang out with for a bit. You don't immerse yourself in nature on that adventure narrative, do you? You sort of, it's it's it's, adverse, it's all about adversity and showing the dominance of the human spirit, etc. So I was drawn to it, but I was also troubled by it. And I think one of the amazing things about big bike journeys is they are without a doubt an adventure in the sense that you're putting yourself out there, you don't quite know 
you know, there's all sorts of things that turn up that you don't quite know how you're going to deal with and you don't quite know what what you're trying to do and who's going to be your ally and how it's all going to work out but you sort of take that step into the semi-unknown anyway and it's definitely about putting yourself intellectually as well as physically but on a bicycle it's really not about conquering or anyway not the way I ride a bike which is quite slowly <laughs> um, and I love being in the mountains but it's more being in the mountains and being immersed in that landscape rather than yeah conquering them so I do go up mountains but I go up quite slowly and I just relish them aesthetically as well as understanding more about their ecology these days your so, yeah, adventures so, sound wonderful. I want to come on one of your type <laughs> of adventures. Wrong <laughs> answer. But yes, I've always been drawn to the concept of adventure. It has to do with freedom and pushing yourself, but I'm definitely moving away from anything to do with conquering and human dominance and into adventures that are much more constructed around immersion in nature and being in these different habitats and ecosystems and seeing myself as one animal amongst many um, as well as engaging with the different human communities and, and, and enjoying that as well. And you really nicely link there this idea between having that less, um, less of a relationship based on a power dynamic in adventure with how we sort of need to affect change with our relationship with nature as well. Um, and I'm wondering when you started to make those links between adventure then being a vehicle for environmental change and activism and kind of what the what you perceive to be the main mechanisms by which it can do that? Yeah, again, it kind of emerged slowly and it wasn't fully conscious for a long time. But I've always been, ever since I started to cycle as a thing, as opposed to a way of commuting, um, I've been drawn to cycling in mountains I absolutely love cycling in mountains. When I graduated from Aberdeen, me and a girlfriend, I had just quit smoking. So when I say I was out of shape, I was really out of shape. I've just done my finals. I'd only just quit smoking. And me and this friend of mine, Mandy, uh, we took off to Marseille and cycled from the mouth to the source of the Rhone on these <laughs> bikes with a chaotic amount of stuff. And we had no idea what we were doing, really. But it was just like this revelation. It's like, wow. I can cycle up mountains and be in this amazing environment. And some other mountains are sunny. Like, remember, I'd grown up in Scotland mostly. So to be in sunshine on a bicycle in mountains and find that I had the physical capacity to go up them, even though I was completely out of shape, it was just like this revelation. So ever since then, I've been doing lots of cycling in mountains and absolutely, absolutely loving it. So that was going on on the one hand. And then on the other hand, I found myself working as an academic, spending more and more time indoors and increasing amounts of time on admin and marking and research. And and yeah, and it was great, especially to start with. But over, over the years, I realized this is sucking the life out of me, actually. And so and then at the same time, I'm finding out all this stuff about the environmental crisis that we're going into. So I ended up thinking, is there a way in which I can raise awareness of these issues to wider audiences than my students important though that was while riding my bike in the mountains um is there a win-win-win here and i ended up developing this notion of adventure plus where um i would use a somewhat adventurous journey as a communication medium so i would get to do the journey research a topic like climate change or biodiversity loss and then come back and turn that thing into a 
into a story based on the bike ride, but with the wider environmental story embedded in it. Um, and I've actually become really excited about that. I think there's a lot of potential in adventure as a communication medium, amongst other things, which we can come back to. Mm. Is there something about adventure itself kind of being a, a metaphor as well, in the sense of, I, I had the kind of thrill in your advice as you and your friend plunged into the unknown on that first, <laughs> on that first adventure, and then kind of going succinctly into, into that again, that idea of research and education and and trying to discover and solve things and, and it strikes me that there's quite a lot of synergy there yeah no absolutely and I actually talk about that in executive these days about about adventure plus and the particular journeys I've undertaken I think so I think adventure can be a communication medium a lot of people are drawn to the notion of adventure I think when you undertake an adventure I'm troubled by the word empowering because it's such a cliche, but it does, when you you, de- you have to deal with stuff, right? And when you deal with stuff, you realize, oh, I can deal with stuff. And weirdly, the fact that your back wheel has just collapsed and you're in the middle of nowhere, the confidence that comes from dealing with that kind of situation, weirdly, that transfers into normal life. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand the, the, how that works and why being able to fix a back wheel is relevant to giving a talk, but it does, right? So you come back and you think, oh, okay, I dealt with that, therefore I can deal with this and I can solve this problem. And then thirdly, I think adventure is a brilliant metaphor for the sustainability challenges that we face. It's As a society, we're going to have to go, go through some huge transitions we don't quite know how we're going to do it and we don't quite know how we're going to get there and we need to work with others and we'll have unexpected allies on the journey etc and i think the metaphor adventure is really helpful because it turns sustainability from something which is often framed as oh we've got to give stuff up to something that's positive and exciting and new and challenging and that brings out the best in us so i think as a metaphor for the change we need to make and how we need to step socially sort of into this new space. It's actually really, really, really helpful. And you started talking there um, about Adventure Plus. <laughs> and I wondered if you could just reflect a little more on um, how that's evolved and then what inspired your, your first Ad- Adventure Plus <laughs> challenge, which was the carbon cycle. Yeah, I mean, I think... Part of the plus for me is that I'm interested in adventure where it stands for living living by values that are somewhat different from the mainstream values of Western societies, which I see as very consumerist, very focused on the notion that to be successful, you need money and things. And we do need a certain amount of money and things, obviously, and things are great up to a point. But there's more than that in life, right? And I think adventure can stand for that more where the values are around pushing yourself and experiencing things and connecting with nature and connecting with other people so that's part of the plus but the main thing about adventure plus is the idea of having adventures which are are then used to raise awareness and inspire action on these big environmental challenges and so I, i think the carbon cycle was the first Adventure Plus journey I made, although I didn't call it that at the time. And that was the Texas to Alaska one that you referred to in the introduction, where I rode the bike, mainly in the Rockies, but on road, um, and looked at climate change as an issue. 
and then came back and turned it into a slideshow and eventually a worst-selling book. And what inspired that? What, where, where did the route come from and, and the drive to complete that particular journey? Well, again, it was partly that desire to communicate to an audience beyond my student audience, much as I valued the opportunity to communicate to them, of course, um, while also needing a life outside the university and needing a way of being on my bike in mountains. And this was my first attempt to bring those things together. And a direct source of inspiration was um, a book by a guy called Bill Plotkin, who's a North American writer and activist. And he wrote this thing, which is incredibly sim simple, but oh my goodness, I found it really, really powerful and actually quite liberating. So Plotkin writes that if you can find somewhere where something that you're passionate about and love doing intersects with something that the world really needs, then that sweet spot in the middle is where you'll not only be happy, but you'll also be at your most effective. And I just thought, yeah, this is stupid trying to make myself stay in academia at the point at which it's kind of sucking the life out of me. I'm not actually going to be doing a good job when I'm operating in this way. Let's try and figure out a way of doing the thing I'm passionate about, riding my bike in big mountains. That coincides with something the world needs, which is definitely more awareness and understanding and action on environmental issues. And that's where the whole idea really started to take off and where I really started to try to figure out, OK, how can I do this in, a, in an effective way? So the carbon cycle was the first. And then I did an amazing journey with uh, Pangaea Exploration on their yacht Sea Dragon, where um, I was I wasn't. Well, everybody sailed the yacht. I'm not a sailor particularly, but on board the yacht was a bunch of scientists and artists. And we sailed um, through the North Atlantic Gyre, where lots of plastic collects in the ocean and did a journey focused on ocean, ocean plastic pollution and how plastic fits into a system and what we can do about it and how we communicate that both as scientists and as artists. So that was absolutely fascinating, fascinating journey. And then the life cycle is the most recent one where I've really sort of gone for broke and I quit my job completely and uh, and just went for it and, and now I'm working on making that mean something. And do you think that talking of sweet spots that it's where that kind of cross-pollination between the creative, the academic, the scientific and then the adventure meet that again we're kind of at our most effective in terms of communicating? Yes and 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 where, where, whichever bits of that any given person really loves to do kind of comes into it. And, you know, we all have different skills, don't we? And we all have different passions and we all bring a different thing to this agenda. And I think what Plotkin made me realise was that, well, it's obvious, isn't it? Do, do the thing that you're best at and that you really love doing, but don't do it in a self-indulgent way. Do it in a way that actually tries to give something back. Hmm. And for you, I guess being being and taking what you have um, as an academic and then applying it in the way that you communicate about your adventures. I wonder if you could just comment on what the writing process is like for you, apart from that, I'm never going to write again, ever. <laughs> it's obviously, you know, massive advocacy for anyone, any aspiring writers out there. <laughs> so that's, that's a really interesting one. I mean, I've always written and, you know, I, I was 
big into poems as a kid and so on. And I guess as, a, as an academic, you have to write, so, but the style is utterly different. But being an academic did treat, teach me to be rigorous and to be clear, which is something I really value. But then translate that into writing a book which is aimed at communication to a wider audience. It's not academic at all, but it is trying to engage people. Um, and through the medium of the adventure story, but then add in a whole lot of information about biodiversity loss and extractivist industries and how impactful they are and all sorts of stuff came up in this journey. Oh my goodness, it just turned into this monster challenge. I'm a, like a, I'm, there are lots of parallels with the cycling. I'm a slow cyclist, I'm a slow writer. I don't find it easy to write. I, I, I love many aspects of the process, but I don't find it easy. Um, I'm not sure most writers find it easy, but I think there are many that find it easier than I do. Or anyway, that's what they tell me, like, Kate, don't write another book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, yeah, so the process is slow and painful and very like riding a bike uphill. Um, but very, very gratifying when you when you go down the other side and you get the amazing vistas and wonderful when it stops. It's that kind of that kind of thing. And do you get a sense when you're also um, speaking about your adventures and, and showing the slideshows and things of how effective your communication is? And I wonder, have you had any kind of unexpected reactions to your stories? Yeah, I mean, there's now working on trying to figure that out. Um, when I got back from the carbon cycle, which was 2006, and it's a long time ago now, I created this monster PowerPoint with loads of slides and figures and facts about climate change. And, um, and, it, and it was okay, but in retrospect, there was just way too many numbers in there. Um, and over the years, I've learned how to use fewer graphs and fewer numbers and tell more stories and tell the story of the environmental crisis through the through the people that I met and through their stories, which makes it a lot more engaging. Um, but it, but again, it's a bit like the long bike ride. It's, it's a process of learning how how that communication works. Um, and I think I'm getting better at it. I I often end up with a, quite a lot of cyclists in the audience, and they come out of it saying, "Oh, I wasn't quite expecting to learn about extractivism, but that was actually really really interesting." And we're glad we came. And there's actually a hunger I think now for adventure stories travel stories that aren't just about the traveler and their experience but are also about engaging more widely with the world and its challenges whether that's human rights issues or environmental issues or or, or whatever. Yes absolutely and just to now shift into into your most recent story as well which is the life cycle which I know that you're keen to talk about. Um, first of all Biodiversity loss is something that Phil gets a lot less press than climate change, but um, from my understanding, it's arguably as important um, as the climate issue. Um, so could you just give us a quick whistle-stop tour to that, um, allowing this to be a platform to speak about it? Yeah, thank you. I mean, one of the things that triggered the life cycle journey was some scientific research that argued exactly that, that biodiversity loss is, is probably a more important, more urgent and more challenging issue, even than climate change, although that's obviously really serious and increasingly so. And I was like, really? 
how can that be? So the life cycle was partly a process of trying to get to the bottom of that and to find out how that could be and what that meant and what that looked like on the ground. And I think key to understanding it is to realize that well, what is biodiversity? It's obviously the diversity of all the living species on the planet, everything from polar bears to tiny ants and on land and on sea. Often when we think about species and particularly losing species we do think about polar bears don't we on their tragically receding ice or we think about tigers and their tragically receding forests the big charismatic megafauna the big sexy animals and it's heartbreaking that we're losing those animals but biodiversity is also the tiny stuff the stuff that gives us fertile soil there's a billion a billion microorganisms in one teaspoon of soil, apparently. I mean, it's amazing what goes on under our feet. Most of life is under the earth. It's extraordinary. Um, things like pollinators, we wouldn't survive without pollinators. And when, when that biodiversity starts to fall apart, then the ecosystems that give us ecosystem function like pollination and like fertile soil start to fall apart too. And of course, biodiversity is also a catastrophe for the animals themselves, right? So it's partly that we can't live without it, but it's also that you know, other species are entitled to be here too. So I was really sort of getting into all of that on my journey and, and discovering what that meant and what that means for people who are, for example, dependent on farming for their immediate livelihoods when ecosystems start to unravel and the soil gets blown away and trees are cut down and so the soil just falls off the mountain and you know all sorts of bad things start to happen under those circumstances and in terms of um the actual eight eight thousand or so miles um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> so you're gonna have a tattoo of it somewhere aren't you <laughs> on your mind um but, was it the witnessing of that biodiversity loss um, that were then kind of planned that journey? Um, what did you hope to achieve through the cycle? Well, I hope to have the chance to explore why biodiversity loss was such an important issue and to kind of ground truth that against people's experiences of what that meant in all of these different countries and also to witness the positive, the positive to see, I mean, so South America is an extraordinary continent, right? It has some of the biggest diversity of ecosystems and habitats, as well as of, of species anywhere on the planet. Um, and I mean, on my bike ride, I cycled from the Caribbean coastline through the Atacama Desert, which is one of the driest deserts in the world, through incredibly lush, wet rainforests and cloud forests, to the high spiky white mountains of the Cordillera Blanca in Peru. I mean, just an amazing diversity of different habitats and ecosystems. And every single one has a different suite of plants and animals living there. And then they all have different hum human communities that depend on those plants and animals. So it was an extraordinary opportunity to see biodiversity at its best, if you like, as well as to see some of the most heartbreaking impact. So drilling for oil in the Amazon was for example, um, which is utterly, utterly ridiculous thing to be doing on so many levels. I mean, there are so many reasons why the Amazon needs to be intact and so many reasons why we shouldn't be drilling for more oil at this point in our climate and ecological emergencies. And 
to be drilling for oil in the Amazon is just like possibly the maddest thing you can imagine human beings ever coming up with, uh, which is quite a claim. Really. So I was witnessing things like that, as well as the extraordinary beauty of, of a rainforest and how very, very alive and vital they are. And again, it comes back to the experience point. When you're in a rainforest, you can feel how important it is that that ecosystem survives. You don't need the numbers. You don't need to know how much oxygen it processes, etc. You just you can just really, really feel it and hear it. And I imagine, I mean, we often talk about the the kind of physical challenges of, of feats of endurance like this, which which we can talk about as well. But it just struck me as you spoke about that um, and the the love and heartbreak in in your voice that perhaps the biggest endurance may have been the the highs and lows emotionally of both celebrating that biodiversity but then then seeing that horrific impact to the earth yes and meeting people who were standing up for their ecosystems and their human communities i met um a woman called Jennifer in Colombia, who was part of a group of young people who were trying to defend their community, their area, their town against encroaching, um, well, a company called Angra Gold Ashanti, which is one of the biggest gold mining companies in the world, had proposed a new gold mine in that area, so big it was called La Colossa. And, oh gosh, the things I learned about the impacts of gold mining, which I had no idea about before but basically well mercury is used in getting the gold out of the soil and when mercury goes into the water then obviously that's an ecological disaster it was a farming area so it would have meant that they couldn't farm any longer because mercury in the water would have polluted crops as well as as well as the wildlife and then the thing i had no idea about at all is that to get about, it's less than a gram of gold, I think it's 0.8 or something of a gram of gold, to get that tiny amount of gold out, you have to move a ton of earth, a ton of earth, and in that earth are sulphides that have never been exposed to air and water, and when they are exposed, they um, turn into sulfuric acid, and then they dissolve other heavy metals again into the soil and into the water, and that carries on for thousands of years after the gold mine has stopped operating. So you basically get an ecocide situation where you have a really significant widespread environmental pollution event because of the gold mining and that it wipes out agriculture in the region and very, very problematic for the wildlife and for the water supplies and so on. Plus it uses a huge amount of water and then that diverts that water from more important things, arguably like agriculture. Anyway, this group of young people got together and were campaigning to try to stop this happening. Um, and, and they were extraordinary. They held a public referendum, which they won, um, and voted against the mine coming into the community. But in the process, two of the young people were murdered. Um, and that, that was never solved, but it's widely believed that that wasn't a coincidence. And actually, I learned about um, this this phenomena of they're called environmental defenders who are murdered by big business trying to operate in an area, and that's been tracked now by a group called Global Witness. But if you you can Google them, Global Witness, and they give the numbers of environmental defenders who've been murdered around the world every year, and it's really really shocking stuff. The way in which these often 
um, very pristine environments are being exploited by big business and the people that live there who are trying to defend it, many in the Amazon, many across South America, are, are often literally killed for, for trying to do that. So that was, you can imagine cycling along and, and encountering these kinds of stories, thinking, oh my goodness, I mean, this is a different league altogether from what I was expecting to encounter. Um, so yes, very, very impactful and very um, emotional, but of course also just completely put any challenges I had into a very, very different perspective. Like you suddenly think, well, I'm not brave in the slightest being here on my bike on a holiday, basically. This is where bravery and this is where real toughness actually is to be discovered. It's in the local people that are that are standing up against these kinds of issues. And there are many, many of them is, is the thing I discovered. I mean, I, that is just incredibly shocking and really does put into, into perspective to the importance of your voice in this, Kate. And I, I know that you've kind of reframed your physical challenge around that, but it, you know, it, your, your bravery in putting yourself out there in order to, to platform these voices is absolutely vital. Um, so thank you. I just wanted to take take a moment just to acknowledge that and thank you because without that awareness we we can't have effective action around and stopping these things from happening well thank you but as I say the real bravery is is the activists not not me I mean I was never in, in any kind of threat I was just passing through um but many of those people really are genuinely putting their lives on the line and and that was quite something to to, to witness but in many different contexts, I saw it in relation to lead mining, copper mining, oil. Um, it isn't just gold mining by, by any means. It's the extractivist industries. And that was a word I hadn't even heard of before I went to South America. Industries that make a lot of money by extracting stuff from the ground, whether that be copper, gold, lead, silver, oil. Um, there's a lot of very, very problematic side effects. And the irony is, of course, that we need this stuff. And a lot of it comes to us in, in Europe and North America and, and the so-called rich countries. And one of the biggest ironies is that a lot of the copper extraction is being driven by the increasing demand for electric vehicles, which is an attempt to address the climate crisis. So, um, But then copper mining has these horrendous impacts when the copper is under a cloud forest, for example, which is another um, set of activists I met who were facing off these huge copper mining companies at great at great personal cost. I mean, as you've termed your ride the life cycle, that kind of behavior just based on extraction is the, the complete opposite, isn't it? It's, it's not based upon a reciprocal relationship in any way with the earth. It's, it's linear. <laughs> No, and when you look at um, some of the worldviews of, of the many indigenous peoples that live in the areas, of course, they have a completely different set of values. I mean, to sacrifice water for gold is insane, according to the worldviews of many indigenous people. I think it's insane from our worldviews perspective. We just don't normally understand that that's what's happening. But that is what's happening. And it is insane. You know, the worst thing about the gold example as opposed to the copper example, for example, is that most of the gold is either locked up in vaults or used for decorative purposes. Very, very, very small amounts of gold are used um, in, in medical or electronic 
purposes. Most of it is really, really, really not needed for anything all that important. I mean, decoration is important, obviously, but not that important, right? Yeah, in comparison, very, very unimportant, I would say. <laughs> we can live without gold jewellery, I think. Yeah, goodness, that, that gold tiara, yeah, I can't, can't live without that. <laughs> You're going to do it right up. <laughs> Definitely can't go into school without that on a Monday morning. <laughs> can't ride a bike without one either. <laughs> <laughs> we joke but um, it's a serious point isn't it but in in stark contrast again your bike was made out of bamboo and by your own own fair hands own <laughs> own fair gold jeweled hands <laughs> could you just speak about the process of building the bike and the yeah. importance of that because that sounds like a wonderful story <laughs> the most amazing thing about this entire journey was that the bike not only held together which actually was a bit of a question mark at the beginning but um it was the most reliable bike i've ever ridden i had virtually no mechanicals for the whole journey which was astonishing wow but yeah, so it's it's actually just the frame that's made of bamboo, just in case people are visualising kind of bamboo wheels and bamboo chains and wondering how the heck that would work. But yeah, the frame is made of bamboo. And I went on a course at the Bamboo Bicycle Club, which still exists, where you can learn how to build your bike out of bamboo. And a lot of their bamboo comes from China. So I was interested in trying to source the bamboo a bit more locally. And we ended up getting bamboo from the Eden Project in Cornwall. So that was a lovely link um, to be able to say that this is a homegrown bicycle. And the, yeah, the bamboo came from England, in fact. So I, I got the bamboo, I went on the course, and over the course of about five days, I was taught how to build the bike, which was a fairly chaotic, but very, very interesting process. And much to my astonishment, the bike that emerged from the other end, as I say, not only worked, but worked supremely well and was a massive asset on the trip in ways I hadn't fully anticipated. So the whole bike as a magician thing gets emphasised and magnified by times 100 if you turn up on a bamboo bike. Everybody wants to know, is that bamboo? And how did you get it? And who made it and how does it ride and does it work? And so that was absolutely brilliant. And of course, it has a lower environmental impact than a, a steel bike. I mean, most bikes are pretty low impact anyway, to be fair, but the bamboo bike has a slightly lower impact. So it was a, a way of opening up those conversations as well. And there was something just incredibly gratifying about riding a low impact bike that used to be a plant on a biodiversity bike ride. So I love the way the sort of the medium and the message came together in the form of the bike. His name is Woody. Um, <laughs> well to this day. Bamboo is of course a grass, but I didn't think I could call the bike grassy really. <laughs> no, people might get the wrong idea of what you're going to do with the bike possibly. <laughs> Woody and I will be on tour when the book comes out and we'll go and give the talks together because everybody loves the bike and they're usually way more interested in the bike than in the at least these involves. But as you say, it's it's a magic trick, isn't it? And it's about engaging people and getting them into that conversation, like talking with cyclists about the science or scientists about the benefits of movement and things as well. It, it's an entry point, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I, and I don't want to lose sight of that in all this kind of heaviness around gold and extractivism and so on. There's, there was a lot of joy to come back to that word on this journey. I mean, just 
to be on the road, to be out there on your bike, to be meeting new people, to be cycling through these incredible landscapes day after day. I just love it. I really, really love being on the road on my bike. And I really love what that opens up. And I really love the simplicity of it. I mean, basically, you you eat, you cycle, you eat, you cycle, you eat, you cycle, you sleep, and you have everything you need on the back. And a bike can take you to, into extraordinary places. So there was a lot of joy on this trip as well. In fact, most of it was, was joyful. And a lot of freedom and a lot of adventure, I guess, and just being in these new places and putting yourself out there a bit. So, yeah, I, I, I love the journey. I would hate to leave listeners with the thought that it was just this oppressive dark thing because it, re it, it really really wasn't there were aspects of that but overall it was a fantastic experience and, and an amazing privilege to be able to take a year off and just go do this thing well as you said it, it's about celebration as well isn't it mm. um mm. and yes I can only imagine that it must have personally given you so much too and was there any from from that joy, is there any particular kind of aha moment that you had on the journey? Yeah, I mean, most of my cycling has been done on roads, usually roads through mountains, um, but on roads nonetheless. And on this journey, um, particularly in Peru, I did a chunk of off-road cycling, um, which is hard work if you've got full-on panniers. I mean, I wasn't, I'm not a lightweight bikepacker type person with these little little bags in the back. I had big panniers front and back. I had a laptop. I had two cameras. I had smart clothes for interviews. I had tents, stoves, sleeping bags, stuff for really, really cold weather because sometimes I was sleeping at altitude. I had different kinds of SPD sound. I had a load of stuff. Um, so I was carrying a lot of weight. And your tiara. Don't forget your and tiara, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but nevertheless, I did some off-road stuff and oh my goodness, that was a bit of a revelation. I can't imagine why I haven't done more of it actually in my life, given that I love mountains, right? Um, but yes, to be on the bike off-road out of the traffic in, in these really remote places was just fantastic. Yeah. Um, so I'm in fact about to start doing a lot more of that going forward and to explore what I can do off-road in a kind of a camping and wild trip sort of way, but locally um, in, in Cumbria and also in Scotland. So I'm really, really excited about that. And also excited about the, the potential of adventures closer to home and what we can all do off our doorsteps without. I should say I, I started the journey, I got to Colombia on a cargo ship. So I managed to okay. do this thing without flying. So it was a, had a much lower impact from that point of view. But nevertheless, I'm, I'm a big fan of adventures that are close to home as a way of bringing down the carbon footprint and other footprints even more. And is what um, is that? Is that what's kind of next for you, both in terms of activism and adventure? These more kind of doorstep opportunities. What's what's coming up for you after you've recovered from the writing process? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, part, partly that, but I, I think I'm just going to have some time on the bike without any obligation to write about it or do anything with it but just some time on the bike in the hills I think that's key as a recharge sort of thing but I'm also really looking forward to being on the road with the bike and giving talks I mean the whole point of the life cycle journey was to create communication around it to raise awareness of biodiversity loss which I have become extremely passionate about and 
sort of really kind of, oh my goodness, we need to know this stuff and we need to act on this stuff. And I really enjoy public speaking now. So I'm looking forward to being on the bike, turning up at places with the bike that everybody loves, um, with the books as well, maybe in a pannier in the back, I haven't decided yet, or a trailer or something. And, uh, and and giving talks about the subject that I care so much about to lots of different audiences in lots of different places. And I think that will take me to different parts of the UK as well that I don't necessarily know all that well. So mm. that's that's what's is is the communication side of the adventure. So the sort of life cycle of the book will kind of then become an adventure in <laughs> itself in a way, right? <laughs> yeah, let's sort of figuring out. Okay, I've moved away from the graphs and the numbers, but really trying to to really work at this communication challenge is is also part of the adventure, right? And how do you how do you move from inspiring and waking people up, which is great if I can achieve that, but then how do you move from that into actual action, and what would that action look like in different places for different audiences? So that's what I'm really looking forward to to grappling with next. Yes, because it, it's it's kind of um, speaking in different languages and manners as well in order to make mm. that communication, well, as we've talked about, the actually impactful. And crossing the kind of communication inspiration to action act is is vital, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. So it's one thing to kind of write, you know, wake people up and get people excited about the issue, but then it's another to figure out where does that then go and how does that translate into action that actually makes a difference? And in terms of people listening to this who have hopefully maybe been woken up a little bit, um, what or already are awake, maybe. <laughs> what advice would you give to someone who's thinking, I want to use my voice, I, I want to be active in this arena and be part of this? How can they? do that both on perhaps kind of an advocacy and also just those kind of day-to-day changes as well yeah I mean I think it comes back to the Plotkin thing where we started from this idea of figuring out what you're passionate about and then how that intersects with something that the world needs so everybody has different strengths and different different things that they love to do figure out how to harness that with the issues that you care most about and then I think it's about resisting the tendency that the modern world has to position us as as purely as consumers. So a lot of advice about activism assumes that we are just consumers in the world. So it's about you buy less meat, take less flights, buy this kind of washing up liquid rather than this kind of washing up liquid. And and that's important, particularly the buy less meat and, and less flights. That is important. But we're not just consumers, right? We're also citizens. We can think about how we vote. We can contact our MPs. Apparently, one of the most powerful things any of us can do is simply write to our MP and say, look, I'm really worried about the ecological and climate crisis. Can you please tell me what you're doing in my area? Um, And then if enough people do that, then they have to really engage with the topic. So that's a really important thing. So we're citizens as well as consumers and we're communicators and we're collaborators. We're all part of things, right? We all have kids in schools or we work in schools or we belong to a business or an organization or we live on a street or we have a village hall. So we all have opportunities to talk to people about these issues and to figure out how we can work on them together. So I've been kind of, I've been finding this framework of C's really useful. What can we do as consumers, as citizens, as as communicators and as collaborators? 
and as catalysts. I mean, there are actually quite a lot of useful seeds that you can employ to think through. So I think it's about asking that question in relation to all of those roles, as well as in relation to your own strengths and weaknesses and passions and, and joys and finding a way of bringing those together on the issue that you most care about and not feeling that you have to be an expert on everything. Just read some stuff and get out there and talk about it. It's so, so important. So, so important. Mm, I think that's really valuable advice, Kate. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And again, to kind of use that slightly cliched word, but em empowering people to feel that that those small things, well, things that might they might perceive as being small really do matter. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. And as I say, I think the thing about not being an expert is important. I'd not heard of the word extractivism before I went to South America, and now I'm giving talks on it. Um, but I think as long as you're clear about where you're coming from, it you know, it really doesn't matter. And I find that very empowering to use that word again, to say at the beginning, I am not an expert on these issues, but I really care about them and I think they're important. And this is what I've learned. And tell me what you know, and then what can we do together? But like you also commented on that the, the sort of the experts have become quite detached from the actual real world lived experience of things. So we're all just kind of fumbling our way, really, in the dark and trying to like on, a, on an adventure, really piece that together. <laughs> I think um, Mike Berners-Lee, who wrote a brilliant book called How Bad Are Bananas, which is all about different kinds of carbon footprints. And it's climate change focused, but um, and obviously I'm trying to go beyond that to biodiversity and other environmental issues. Nevertheless, one of Mike's pieces of advice, which I think is so helpful, is basically don't sweat the small stuff. I mean, he tells an amazing story of somebody who contacted him saying, What's the dip, what's the best way to dry my hands in a public toilet? Is it this kind of dryer or this kind of dryer or the paper towel? And Mike was like, okay, I can find that out and told him the answer. And he said, but where are you? And he said, well, I'm in the International Departure Lounge at an airport. And he's like, mm. <laughs> don't worry how you dry your hands. Just don't get on the plane. So that kind of don't sweat the small stuff, but stay focused on the on the things that will actually make a difference. Don't beat yourself up for eating the odd bit of fruit that's come by plane or whatever but do think about the big things in your life that you could maybe buy a bit less or eat a bit less meat i think that's really helpful advice because we can spend our entire lives trying to purify ourselves can't we um, and forget the bigger picture absolutely i'm just thinking of all the myriad ways that that is just so <laughs> so outlandish like the power that it's taking to send the messages and to browse the internet and I guess exactly. <laughs> all for the sake of the hand wash <laughs> moving on from that um my final <laughs> my final question Kate you've been so generous um with your time and thoughts here um what does joy mean to you <sighs> what a lovely question what does joy mean to me I think it's got to be waking up in my little tent somewhere and looking out of the tent and seeing some amazing environment and, and making some nice coffee and having breakfast and knowing that I'm about to spend the day riding my bike in a mountain area that's that is joy definitely and then knowing that further down the line I'll be able to use that in some way and give something back to the to the mountainous regions in particular that I'm so passionate about riding my bike in it's yeah that reciprocity is also part of it I think for me that is glorious thank you thank you so much for sharing that and and thank you as I said for 
for your time and energy and, and everything everything that you do I think we spoke we've spoken out haven't we <laughs> but just to just to ask so that people can continue um the education process and and supporting what what you do where is it best to kind of find you and then um news on your book as well <laughs> Oh, thank you for asking. So my website is www.outdoorphilosophy.co.uk. It's all one word, Outdoor Philosophy. And there will be information about the book there and talks and so on. And there's also information about the other trips and the issues, the underlying issues. So biodiversity loss and there's a section on what we can all do about that. The book comes out with Icon Books on June the 1st and will be available at all good bookshops. Um, and again, there will be information on that about about that on the website so yeah i would absolutely love it if people read the book and then tell me how to well what works for them as a piece of communication and what doesn't i'm really really interested to hear whether it lands for people um, and which bits work and which bits i can do better next time not that there's going to be another book but <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that for that opportunity and opening that window to have to have discussion as well um that's really vital um and I'll be sure to to share about the book when it comes out and also really anticipate reading it myself and and following your journey um and again thank you so much I've learned a lot from this conversation um and I hope too that this has served as, as some small piece in the jigsaw of, of spreading that message and yeah, we're, well, starting um, and ending in the same place, waking people up really. <laughs> thank you. And thank you so much for your insightful and compassionate questions. Really, really appreciated. I am so grateful to the community that is growing around the podcast and if you've enjoyed today's episode I would so appreciate if you can share it with your communities and help spread the message of support, perseverance and joy further. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests you can find me on Instagram at running underscore on underscore joy. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time for Running on Joy.